Sky News Studios in Melbourne, live, The Vault Report. Welcome to the show. Coming up, the Me Too movement claims its biggest scalp. Film producer Harvey Weinstein found guilty of rape. Is this the end of the Hollywood casting couch? Plus, the mother of global warming superstar Greta Thunberg writes a book detailing her daughter's battle for mental health. Does this confirm concerns about how Greta Thunberg is being used? I'll ask a psychiatrist. Plus, of course, the latest revelations of a big rise in spying and terrorism investigations in this country. But first, and this is uh, ugly news that I have to give you, particularly in the context of security threats, unfortunately it seems that some of those that we look to protect us may have betrayed us, may have betrayed our values, may have made us look ourselves like the enemy. The Inspector General of the Australian Defence Force this afternoon released his annual report, which included an update on the investigation into alleged war crimes by some of our special forces in Afghanistan. It's an investigation led by a former judge, Major General Paul Brereton. Now, the scale of this investigation is uh, shocking. And it started the Inspector General said, with vague rumours of very serious wrong, wrongdoing by Special Forces soldiers over more than 10 years. And he then says it took years for some soldiers, current and past, to actually trust that the heads of our armed forces really were serious about getting to the truth of them. That's a sad reflection right there. The result now after talking to more than 300 witnesses over four years, is this. And this is quite shaming. This inquiry is investigating no fewer than 55 separate incidents or issues that could have broken the law of armed conflict. 55. Now, these 55 separate incidents are predominantly alleged unlawful killings of persons who were non-combatants or were no longer combatants, but also cruel treatment of such persons. I want you to be clear about we're talking, what we're talking about here. In my words, not the reports, we're talking about civilians and people who'd surrender being tortured or executed. Allegedly, what's all allegedly, uh, one example might be I mean, shot in the head. And be clear about this. Other thing here. We are talking about incidents said to have been done not in cold blood, not in the fog of war. As the report says, the inquiry is not focused on decisions made during the heat of battle. It's what soldiers did after that. Now, the report says it's still gathering evidence, this inquiry. No findings have been made about guilt or innocence, but there is no hiding how seriously it is taking these 55 allegations. Inspector General correctly, in my opinion, won't name any of the soldiers being investigated. He says, well, you know, uh, we can't destroy a man's reputation with allegations publicly that may later prove false. But we do already know that one of our most decorated soldiers, Victoria Crosswind at Ben Robert Smith, 
is suing three newspapers of the Nine Group for claiming he ordered the execution of an unarmed Afghan civilian. Now, Robert Smith denies this allegation strongly, and this report from the ADF Inspector General does not mention him or his case. So, the Robert Smith stuff, that must and will be judged separately in our courts. So, put Robert Smith aside. This is instead about the damage, I think, that these allegations in the report, if they're true, will do to our reputation, Australia's reputation. Now, some people will say that's precisely why the Australian Defence Force should have let sleeping dogs lie. What good comes out of painting our soldiers who are in stressful conditions in a war zone overseas, what good comes out of painting them as war criminals? It just encourages our enemies and makes our soldiers and us less safe. But I've got to ask what good comes out of committing war crimes in the first place, if that's what happened. And it's that which would make us less safe and make us also less than what we Australians are or what we should be. The coronavirus is not just a health emergency, two and a half thousand people dead already. It's also now risking becoming a financial disaster, particularly with China, virus central, cut off as a market and a supplier. And you know how reliant we are on China. The virus, at least, thank God, seems to have peaked in China. But in Europe, in Italy, we're now seeing whole towns put in quarantine with deaths in Italy from the virus now up to seven. And investors are now panicking. America's stock market overnight had its worst day in two years. Our own stock market today dropped another 1.6%. That's $33 billion of value gone in a day. And the Morrison government seemed very worried about what all this means for its budget, you know, with Chinese tourists and students no longer coming. In fact, the Prime Minister and the Treasurer called a press conference today to say just how worried they are. Treasury have told me they haven't finalised their advice on the economic impact um, of the virus, but the message is very clear. The impact will be more significant than the bushfires mm. uh, and it plays out more broadly across the Australian economy. Now, the problem for the government and us is that the economy was already struggling to get out of first gear. Unemployment has gone up to 4.3% instead of down to 5 as the last budget predicted. And growth has already been tipped to fall as well. So Labor today said we shouldn't buy the government's excuse that the coronavirus is what's dragging us down. I think what we're seeing uh, is the usual predictable, clumsy, ham-fisted expectation management from the Treasurer. Uh, who seems to wander around uh, expecting a pat on the back for an outcome that has not yet been realised. So, what is the coronavirus actually doing to our economy and what will this mean for you? Joining me is the country's top finance writer, Terry McCran of the Herald Sun. Terry, thanks so much for dropping by. Now, like I say, we already know the coronavirus is a medical emergency. 
what do you think it's actually going to do to the world economy? Well, clearly, Andrew, we, putting aside the medical issues, obviously that's not my patch, clearly this is something we did not need in terms of the impact on the global economy and on our own economy. Our own economy is probably pretty clear-cut, the initial impacts to, to viewers, tourism, students, uh, various things that flow from, from people. As yet, we haven't seen any dramatic and dramatic impact on what we sell to China other than that. You know, but the ships are still going to yeah, and fro. The ships are still going, the iron ore, the coal, mm -hmm. those things, those, those raw materials. In fact, there's been some consolidation of the prices we've been getting uh, mm. in, in the last couple of weeks as the expectations that China's getting on top of it. Um, the, the one thing I would say absolutely clearly, this is not another GFC. This is not as bad. No, even if you take the worst case perspective on what happens in China and the global, and the global environment, this is not going to be as bad as the GFC. Uh, but we really don't know how bad it's going to be, what impact it's going to have ultimately on the world economy and on us. Now, you're saying, uh, right, the tourists... China has stopped and we've stopped... Exactly. People coming here. And I think so we've got to be very careful about, un, uh, you know, uh, loosening that. Because the one thing we do not want to get, if we do it too quickly, if we start to get cases breaking out in Australia as a consequence of that, that would be a very bad outcome. Now, there's, is there a point where we stop sending ships over there or getting ships back where well, it actually I think, hits the train? I mean, as you said, the, it looks like it's peaked in China. We really don't know. But... Um, the indications are that... The other thing that made this strange was that the virus outbreak in China coincided, or the explosion of it, coincided with their New Year holiday break. So they sort of... It was easy for them to keep their factories closed longer, uh, obviously, to try and contain it. Um, the indications now are that they're beginning to start bringing those back online. Now, if that's the case, you know, this will be a short-term impact in terms of its... Uh, impact on us and, and, and very importantly, I mean the other, the other big impact that this could have if it goes on for a long time is supply chains. China is now so important in the global economy in terms of feeding stuff into not just consumer goods but feeding inputs into factories around the world. And that's, that's, that's the really worrying thing. If this became a real full-blown pandemic and we couldn't get those supply chains across the board, I mean f from industrial products, consumer products, right across the board to pharmaceuticals, all those things now depend on supply out of China. Now, um, the government seems to be panicking today. We've got... I think the economy, to be fair, was already not getting out of the first gear, not going to meet the, the, all the predictions that we'd been told. The bushfires. Then we had the bushfires. Now we've got this. What is this year looking like? Well, we're get, it's, going to be, it's going to be a slow year. Uh, I, I don't think you can make a judgment about... Uh, the bushfires will self-correct. Once the spending kicks in, um, the rebuilding kicks in, they will, it'll basically, you know, it obviously hurts people individually, but from the economic perspective, it'll be much, pretty much a wash through the year. Uh, the Except, of course, for the budget surplus that was promised. Well, it's sort of... It, but it won't be that big a hit on the budget surplus. I mean... Uh, and basically, at the end of the day, if this, we don't have a surplus in this context, it's, I don't think you can either blame the no. government or, or, or say that, oh, no, you've got to deliver that surplus and therefore cut back. Clearly, that shouldn't be the case. I don't think... That, I mean, 
I don't read the government as panicking. I mean, obviously they don't like the politics of it. But there's nothing very much that either the government or the Reserve Bank can do to fight the economic impacts of the, of the virus because, you know, it's about letting the students come into the country, letting the tourists come into the country. It's about those, those products no. coming to Australia. So cutting interest rates is not going to suddenly... No, look, factors. I totally agree with you. I think really the question is a decade of labour huge spending the coalition being slow to pull it back mm. has left us with an empty kitty and probably more vulnerable to shocks than we should be. Well, exactly, and this is a shock right out of left field. I mean, no one... Most shocks have, are no, out of well, left field. But no one would have, I mean, an economic shock, you, uh, like the GFC, you can react to that mm. and that you can expect the government to do things as they did uh, both here and overseas back in 2008. But this is not something you can respond to with economic policies. Terry McCrane, thank you so much for shedding some light on this because, uh, wow, we haven't been in this sort of space for, well, not that I remember. Thank you so much for your time. After the break, Greta Thunberg's mother describes her daughter's battle for mental health. Is making her the guru of the global warming movement actually the right cure? A troubled young woman. Her evil parents... We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? Uh, I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Greta Thunberg is still just 17 years old, but for nearly two years already has been the guru of the global warming movement, even the saint, let us call her, lecturing the United Nations, the European Parliament, big business, huge crowds. Now, I've been amazed at the adulation of this teenager, the worship almost, that teenager is so absolutist, so starkly black and white. You all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And yet, I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. Uh, making more, me more uneasy about the the worship of this girl and the exploitation of her is a new book by her mother, former opera singer Melina Ernman, with the help of the rest of the family. It's extraordinary, particularly where Ernman describes her daughter's battle with mental health. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing out to you. Uh, you can go to my blog for um, the relevant extracts and a link to more. But to uh, sum up, Ernman and her husband jet-setted around the world with their two daughters for a decade and then realised, as she said, that everything was starting to fall apart around us. Greta's then 11. She's crying all night. She's crying going to school. She's crying at school. She's stopping... She's stopped talking and she's stopped eating and lost 10 kilos. Now, her parents screamed at her, ''You've got to eat!'' And then says her mother... Greta has her first panic attack. She lets out an abysmal howl that lasts for over 40 minutes. This is her own mother revealing all this. 
After two months, Greta does start eating again, goes on antidepressants. The family then learns she's been bullied at school, doesn't want to make friends because she thinks all children are mean. And they also discover Greta has Asperger's and high-functioning autism as well as obsessive-compulsive disorder. More. Her younger sister also turns out to have a range of disorders. Attention deficit disorder, elements of Asperger's, obsessive-compulsive disorder and oppositional defiant disorder. But then comes global warming to, well, basically save Greta. But before I get to that, let me introduce my guest, Dr Tanvir Ahmed, an author and a psychiatrist. Tanvir, thank you so much indeed for joining me again. Look, I should um, again stress, make clear that we are not discussing anything that Greta Thunberg's own mother and father have put out there and obviously, I presume, want discussed. Now, two girls in the same family with such a wide range of behavioural disorders. Is that unusual? Look, not necessarily, but what it tells you there is there's either a genetic component or there's a systemic component. And, so, and I think the mother too had some history of mental illness. So it does tell you there's a systemic component to this family where there's a considerable amount of what we might call uh, emotional distress or, or mental health uh, problems. So it certainly raises some questions about the wider family dynamic. Okay, now we're not going to specify particularly what we think because we don't know the family, but these are warning signs. Now, so far my sympathy is fully engaged. People with children battling mental issues, I think, deserve all the sympathy. But then you get Ernman, Greta's mother, going on to say how Greta got back her energy and enthusiasm, and here's where I start to worry. She discovers global warming, is shocked that people don't live like there really is a climate emergency, the planet's all going to burn. She gets her parents to stop flying. Then she starts her famous school strike for the climate. Her father helps to organise the publicity. And before long, this girl who couldn't and wouldn't speak, even to her parents, is famous and addressing huge public meetings demanding climate action. And Ehrman writes, the audience stands up shouting, applauding, the ovation doesn't stop and Greta is smiling, the most beautiful smile I have ever seen her smile. Now, as a psychiatrist, what do you think is going on here? Well, there's a lot to say about this one. I mean, one, she is a very exciting figure. You've got this, you know, essentially a teenage girl uttering these complete certainties about the future and the world. So that's where there is a real religious dynamic. And we live at a great time of, a time of great uncertainty, of a real kind of moral uncertainty. So, so, so to see such confidence um, from this slightly eccentric figure, I think I can imagine why it's so attractive to many people. Now, Andrew, we should think about a lot of politics is on this spectrum of when people feel a degree of distress, they feel emotional distress or internal distress, sometimes where they place that on the spectrum of to what extent is it their internal problems versus where do, to what extent do their problems exist in, say, external structures, you know, be it the political system or the economic system, a lot of politics is about that. And many people on the radical edges of politics, be it on the left and right, are often borderline, you know, mentally unhealthy. But a way they sometimes find a way of coping is channeling themselves into radical politics. And I guess one of the key interesting things I find about Greta Thunberg Mother's um, book, how she links her house on fire with the planet on fire. So you get this real sense of her, of her almost... Mm. 
kind of abdicating responsibility that there's all these problems in her household with her children, but no, that's got nothing to do uh, with uh, possibly their own uh, responsibility or their own parenting styles. And, and I admit, I don't know anything about that because I don't know this family. But it, it's very convenient to suddenly then extrapolate from that and say it's, it's all got to do with external structures, be it the patriarchy or the climate crisis. I guess what you're saying is, uh, you know, it's not me that's unwell, it's the rotten world and, uh, you know, you've got to change. Now, I want to pick up on something that you said earlier that um, the absolute certainty that she exhibits in her statements is just no concessions, there's, there's no shades of grey, life is mostly shades of grey, it's absolute. And now uh, the fact that she does see things in such extreme, such black and white, no compromise, Given what we're told by her mother have been her private mental battles, um, does that surprise you? Look, not entirely. I think we've talked about this before, Andrew, where often people on the autistic spectrum, and she's been diagnosed with high-functioning autism. There's no question she's very intelligent. And many people with high-functioning autism are very capable. I mean, Silicon Valley is full of um, uh, people probably on that spectrum. But there are some characteristics of high-functioning autism where they are far more likely to be black and white. They're not good with kind of greys or emotional uncertainties or social uncertainties. Uh, and you see that in Greta's, Greta Thunberg's statements. Now, while it may be attractive for a lot of people, I mean, her exhortations to tell the world to, clani uh, to panic and that, you know, her elders are evil, I mean, this is not a sensible way to make pol uh, policy. So I can see how she might inspire and, uh, and uh, excite a lot of people, but to jump on that bandwagon, especially for a lot of young people. I mean, today, Andrew, we've just had a study come out where a lot of primary schools seem to be showing an increase in anxiety more generally. More generally. And I think to, to kind of almost, you know, ask a whole generation to panic rather than think and think of the greys and, and, and the complexities of not just climate change but all, you know, a whole range of policies, I think is not a terribly good way to act about the future or to take control of your life more generally. Well, that's exactly why I've in the past raised concerns, which have uh, got me uh, heavily criticised, um, that the, the, her mental battles for wellness are relevant in the sense of I think they help her frame the world in a way that I don't think is actually accurate or helpful at all and it just staggers me that people don't see this and are taking their cues from how they should see the world from a girl that has had these issues. I find that quite amazing. Now Tanvir, people, many people will say, I, I, I would assume, that well look, and I think there's some weight in this, Greta at least is now happy. Whatever we might think of it, she's at least happy in this cause, uh, as her mother says. Um, and that's justification enough, let it be. Your response? Well, th that is the concern. It, it appears, some of this appears to be a giant coping response on the part of not just Greta Thunberg, but the entire family, uh, including the mo mother. And, and, and to be honest, that, that's not entirely a bad thing. But when the whole world jumps on it as, a, as some sort of prescription for policy, I mean, and that's far more problematic. I mean, I think it's very good for people to have, who've got, you know, some sort of mild disorders and they found a way to cope and find a sense of purpose and meaning. I mean, that, that's fantastic. But um, in a case like this, and 
And I should also add, look, I mean, there are certainly cases throughout history where somebody who has been able to see the world in a fresh light uh, might have been seen to have been, uh, you know, mentally ill or been uh, eccentric in their time. So that's not uh, unforeseen. But I think we have to be very careful where someone has clear, not just her, her to some extent her entire family, where there's clear, considerable emotional vulnerabilities and the way they've responded to climate change, almost latched onto it as a coping, coping mechanism for themselves, we need to be very wary of not suddenly allowing that to be some sort of wider uh, policy prescription for the world or reading into it. Um, I got it. Yeah. Yeah, I got it. So it's helpful for them. But uh, please don't start thinking this is, uh, you know, the world for you. Uh, Tanvir Ahmed, thank you so much indeed for your time. Fascinating stuff. Pleasure. Thanks, Andrew. Is Hollywood's casting couch now gone, chucked on the tip? Overnight famed film producer Harvey Weinstein was found guilty of raping two women who were working for him. Two of at least 100 women, including actresses who complained of being sexually attacked or abused or harassed over the years by Weinstein. I must say, in his, you know, he denies everything, but 100 is a lot. Now, this verdict clearly legitimises the Me Too movement. Me Too was inspiring at the start. I backed it. Women calling out powerful men, particularly in the media, for using their power to sexually abuse women. But then it seemed in danger of going off the rails. Some innocent men got accused. But this verdict really now puts Hollywood on notice unambiguously. Use that casting couch and you could go to jail. I want to show you what a huge change this is. Let me play you two clips. The first shows just some of the dozens of shout-outs that Weinstein used to get at the Oscars. And you've got to ask, did none of these people know what the man was privately up to? Harvey Weinstein, Bob Weinstein, God bless him. Harvey Weinstein, who believed in us and made this movie. Harvey and Bob Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein. Thank you, Harvey Weinstein. Especially Harvey. I want to thank Harvey and Bob Weinstein. Thank Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein. Harvey, who first took me on 20 years ago. I would like to thank Harvey Weinstein. And now I want to show you the Hollywood culture, a little insight into it that's going to be changed by this Me Too movement and now Weinstein going to jail. Here is actress Donna Mills, a star of Knott's Landing, telling Channel 10 just last December what Hollywood's casting couch culture used to be like. In her early years of acting, Donna says she witnessed firsthand the casting couch culture. There were literally times when you go to some place where you didn't know if it was a studio or a room or whatever, you knock on the door and you go in and there's just this one guy there, you know, who says he's the director, you know. And then, you know, he gives you the script and you go, oh, no. It's, you know, it's sexual stuff that you're supposed to be doing. And by that time, you're in the room and you don't know how to get out. And, you know, it's, it's, that happened to me any number of times. And it's horrible. Yeah. Really, really terrible. It's so upsetting. You feel stupid for ever having gone. But those days, I suspect, are now over, or at least severely curtailed. 
But on with Newswatch, and joining me is Jared Henderson, head of the Sydney Institute, columnist of the Australian newspaper, and author of the Media Watchdog blog. Jared, um, the ABC's Insiders, it's a flagship Sunday political talk show. When mm. it was first launched in 2001 and when it, and the second year, 2002, it had at least four regular conservative commentators on rotation on the panel. Never together, of course. It was always two against one. But we conservatives were there and were there for a number of years. I was there until I left a decade later to do the Bolt Report. Uh, Piers Ackerman, uh, until he was dumped for saying something too controversial. Kate McGregor, as she now is, more conservative back then, who left to join the army. And then there was you, Jared. except the insiders have been refusing this year to put you on, the last of the Amigos, and you've since brought this to a head and said goodbye. What is the story here? Well, I've been on uh, 17 years since 2002 and about over 100 episodes, and normally I, write, I send a note in advance because I'm a pretty busy person, and I say, look, have you got any dates for me? So I did that early in February. The executive producer didn't an, uh, or phoned me up eventually and said, no, he didn't. So I asked a very blunt question, will I be on the program this, this year? And he said he hadn't made up his mind. And I sent another note and then there was another phone call and I said, well, will I be on the program? He said, I can't give you any guarantee. And I said, well, I'm not going to sit by the phone for nine months uh, and, and wait for a call. And my position is uh, I don't want to be a member of a club that doesn't want me. So I sent an au revoir message on the 13th of February, which is about 10 days ago or thereabouts and saying, look, um, that was it. I mean, if they don't want me, uh, I, don't, I don't want to be on, but I was not given a reason. Although I, know, I notice in recent times, <laughs> reasons I have been given to The Guardian, to Amanda Mead, and I'll just read out what Amanda got from uh, ABC TV, presumably from insiders, which some of your viewers might find amusing. Henderson did not sufficiently engage with the issues during the journalist discussion. So, I'm accused of not engaging with the issues, whereas most of my opponents said I engaged too readily with the issues. <laughs> so, uh, so I guess what I did was I disagreed with a few people, and a lot of journalists are very proud. And to be fair to the insiders team, whenever I went on, and this is the case with other conservatives in this country, there are not very many of them, the ABC gets such a welter of opposition. Uh, my, younger, my, my young casuals at the office tell me that I would invariably trend on, on Twitter on Sunday with an overwhelming number of people saying I shouldn't have been on. And eventually they, 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 will to, they give in to that. And so, look, there are a number of reasons. No, mate, quite, mate, look, quite frankly, if people don't to... want me, I don't want to be there, you know. I once went to an insider's uh, Christmas party when I was still on the show and I was told, I won't say by whom, I was told that every time I appeared, they got a whole lot of protests. You know, yeah. How could you have a Conservative on? But it was great for the show. Yeah, well, Ratings right. were good. Yeah. And I remember you versus David Maher being uh, one yeah. thing that I had to watch. Uh, yeah, because finally someone from the left was being uh, held to account. But apparently uh, you engaged too much, I think not with the topics, <laughs> you engaged too much with the panellists saying stupid things. And I think that's probably the well, problem. You made them look dumb. I think there's one thing that I can say that is documented and true. Uh, I think I'm the only panellist on Insiders who not only said that Donald Trump could win, but specifically set out what states he could win to win, and he won those three states that I mentioned. Uh, I also said that Brexit would get up, because I'd recently been to Britain and I understood the climate there outside of London. 
And I said that Scott Morrison had a chance of victory. There was a path to victory for Scott Morrison. And I pointed out where it was through northern Tasmania, western Sydney, Queensland, north of the Brisbane CBD. Now, I was the only panellist who got it right. And I have a feeling that if you get it right, they're going to go against you. Because virtually, not every other panellist in the program, but some no. panellists on the program got it spectacularly wrong. And they're all well, back this year. Well, reserve your tips for this show, Jared. Reser <laughs> okay. Yeah, but the thing is, you then go with the crowd, nah. Jared. How often must yeah. it be said? So I reckon if I'd got it wrong, I reckon if I got it wrong, I would have been asked back, I reckon. That's my view. I think so. I think that's probably right. Jared, yeah. I should point out that insiders, David Spears, who used to be here, is now yeah. the new host. I love David. Yeah. David is a very, very good interviewer, and you cannot fault the interviews he's done with that show. But I have to say uh, that the four shows since have had 12 panellists, uh, some with very good new panellists. Renee Villaris is yes. also on this show yep, sometimes. She's very good. But yeah. I can't identify one who would you say is an out and proud Conservative. So Conservatives, I think, are now gone the way of the dodo on the ABC. Now, um, Jared, last night we saw on another ABC show something I'm not going to criticise. Uh, I'm going to mention I haven't seen it before. A diplomat from the Chinese embassy, deputy head of mission Wang Xining, on a panel arguing the case for his country, which, to be frank, is a dictatorship and not that friendly to us. Here's some of it. People say uh, Australia is a Western democracy and we are uh, a state, a party state. Actually, we see ourselves as a socialist democracy. Uh, a simplest comparison between Australian uh, democracy and Chinese uh, democracy will be like this. You have a voting democracy. We have a working democracy. Because efficiency is our top concern. We but are democracy involves voting. Uh, we, we vote. Uh, I, will, well, I was who, working... Who votes? Uh, people vote. People vote for the member of the National People's Congress and the People's Congress at all levels. a free vote to elect the leaders it's, of it China. It is free. It is free. I work in the local government. I know how people are voted. Of course, you... So, so you, how many votes did Xi Jinping win to become the leader of China? Uh, Xi Jinping was voted the president. And uh, in the party, there's also a voting, voting process. You don't know that. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Jared, I'm not criticising the ABC for having on this diplomat, and I note mm. the host did try to hold him to account, but he should have said that you can only stand for election in China if you're a communist, which sort of cuts the field a bit. And yet I, I do wonder how... Wouldn't China think that was pretty useful to have on their fairly plausible-sounding diplomat there? Well, I've been should we fear giving China mm. that platform? I don't think that was a problem. Look, unlike many of my contemporaries, I was opposed to the communist, Chinese Communist Party all my life through the Cultural Revolution and beyond. And I saw Mr Wang last night. Um, I thought, well, he went on the program, but to be fair to Q&A, he, he got a lot of criticism and he got mocking laughter from the audience. And uh, I don't like it when that happens to anyone. I'm not a supporter of Mr mm. Wang. But I don't think he, he, he going on the program made a great contribution to the way China is viewed in Australia, particularly the way he handled the issue about the Uyghurs in, in China and the persecution of the Uyghurs. So, uh, look, I, um, I, I would have thought in that sort of situation, someone like Mr Wang would be better getting uh, an interview or perhaps an interview like David Spears and talking through the issues. I think any kind of foreign diplomat is probably entitled to courtesy yeah. from an audience, but... I don't I think, I don't think he did. I just worry about the normalisation. I just worry about the normalisation. But I don't 
having said that, fair enough to have mm. him on. It was interesting to have him on, but the normalising of a representative of a dictatorship that right now has got a million Muslims under lock and key, for instance, mm. um, I think we always must be aware of what it really is. Jared Henderson, thank you so thank much you. for your time. And before I, uh, I should actually close, too, by saying you know, what worries me more is uh, the Sydney Morning Herald running a as a paid insert the China Daily, paid propaganda from the Chinese Communist Party. And good on Channel 9's Chris Ullman for criticising what his company is doing there. This is just uh, this is quite extraordinary. Coming up after the break, the panel and the parliament. Our parliament votes to condemn Bettina Arndt's comments on last week's horrific murder. Should she really be stripped of an order of Australia? I'm uneasy about this. Plus terrorism threats. ASIO says is investigating twice as many this year. Bettina Arndt, the men's rights campaigner, last week suggested that the man who murdered his three children and his wife burned them to death in Brisbane could have been pushed to it. Now, I explained in my column and here last night why I, why I thought those comments were terrible. I mean, pushed to killing his family? Pushed by what to this horror? Let's not encourage what sounds a bit like victim blaming. Now, politicians from both sides, including Labor leader Anthony Albanese today, demanding that Aunt now be stripped of her Order of Australia. And in the Senate this afternoon, every senator except Pauline Hanson and Malcolm Roberts condemned what Aunt had said. Joining me are two of those senators, Labor's Kimberley Kitching and the Liberals' James Patterson. Now, Kimberley, I'm also critical of uh, Bettina Aunt's comments, but Take this idea of stripping her of an order of Australia. Don't you worry that if we establish that precedent, that a lot more people who have done great work in one area will lose an honour because they made a comment in another that is unpopular or which politicians are too scared to defend or the whatever? Where do we then draw the line? I think, Andrew, her comments were offensive to suggest that um, the husband and father of this family... Um, Hannah Clark and her three beautiful children were somehow, was, you know, he was being driven too far. That is offensive and there is no excuse for that. I agree the with Governor you General with that. Did, the, the Governor-General did say today that they had received a large mm. amount of correspondence on this issue and the Council for the Order of Australia would um, be considering Ms Arndt's uh, award. Uh, Honours are an honour to receive and um, we can't we don't know what's going I've to got happen that, but, I just, but yeah. the order of the, the 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 council for the order of australia will make that decision that james would did, does that worry you that if you start stripping people of an uh, an award that they're given for one area because of comments in another where does that stop and you know who then starts drawing lines here I've admired Bettina Arndt's work in the past, particularly her advocacy for due process regarding sexual assault allegations on campus. And I don't think people should be condemned by the Senate just for going against the grain or having views that are not consistent with the zeitgeist. Mm. But what she said last week went far, far beyond that. I mean, three innocent children were burned alive 
by their father. Um, this is a very, very different kettle of fish. So I think she does deserve the condemnation she's received. I also don't believe, though, that politicians should intervene in the awards and honours process. It is independent of politics for good reason. It's presided over by the Governor-General for good reason. It has public confidence in part because of that. So I don't think we should mm -hmm. establish a political filter or political pressure on who receives those awards and when those awards should be taken away. It should be done in an arm's length way and I think that's ultimately what will happen here. Yeah, well, look, I don't like her comments at all for the reasons you've given and the ones I gave last night. But, yeah, I'm, I'm just torn on this one, whether to take the award away. I, I wonder about the precedent here. To the bigger news, the speech uh, last night by the head of ASIO saying there were a lot more... There was a lot more spying going on here in Australia, though he didn't mention China by name, but it is China he means, have you example I can reveal, that a foreign intelligence service sent an agent to Australia. The agent lay dormant for many years, quietly building business and community links, all the while maintaining secret connection with their offshore handlers. The agent then started feeding his spy masters information about Australian dissidents, expatriate dissidents, which directly led to their harassment in Australia and harassment of their relatives overseas. Kimberly, how serious is this? Not just this one particular thing about aspiring, but the general concept that a lot more spying going on and, and harassment of dissidents here and their families back home in China. Well, the Director-General of ASIO doesn't give speeches very often, uh, so this is a very important marker. Uh, he did also say that we are seeing un well, levels of spying and foreign interference as we have not seen since the days of the Cold War. Uh, you know, we are very lucky, Andrew, that we have such exceptional security agencies and both sides of politics take their advice. It's a bipartisan issue uh, and a bipartisan approach to take the advice of our security agencies. Uh, this is a very serious matter. Remember, we have had uh, some breaches recently of the Australian Parliament House's email system. Mm -hmm. ANU has been hacked. Uh, we need to be careful and we need to take the advice of our security agencies. Yeah, but I think uh, you are part of a group that wants a little bit more than this. So are you, James. Both of you seem to be part of a bipartisan group of MPs who think we should challenge China more forcibly. There was even a lovely illustration of you, uh, you the four of you, including Andrew Hastie, of course, uh, all bearing guns, Tim, uh, Tim Wilson as well, Liberal MP. Um, what's the story here? Well, um, I'll start, and James, <laughs> James can, uh, can um, you know, he'll, he will say his own in his own words. But uh, this is a group where we have, we do reach across the chamber, we do discuss national security issues. Uh, it's does it's not limited to just the four of us. The four of us were asked by the Times of London to give comment around Huawei's involvement in the British 5G network. Uh, and we gave some strong comment around, um, well, really whether that was a desirable uh, development. Uh, Answer, we, no, because uh, China will spy on them. But uh, my point really is, well, what well, we is were very this group about? By that. Yeah, well, I can, well, uh, I absolutely, you should be. James, what's this group about? Andrew, that was a, a light-hearted take by the Herald Sun graphics department on a very serious issue, which is that 
politicians from all sides of politics need to work together when we have mm. shared objectives. And in this instance, I don't believe it's a left-right issue. It's a democracy, uh, non-democracy issue. If you are concerned about Australia's sovereignty, if you're concerned about Australia's national interest, if you're concerned about our values, then we need to stand up and assert those in an environment, as the Director-General of ASIO said, is facing unprecedented attempts at foreign interference. And um, clearly, uh, one of those countries among those uh, is China, who has the, the capacity and the intent uh, to do so. Um, so I'm very pleased to work with uh, Kimberley or anyone else on the Labor side and crossbenchers too, who share those concerns and want to stand together. Well, can I congratulate and you I both? Think I think it's so important that people on oh. both sides of politics come together on an issue like this. And also Anthony Byrne of the Labor is also good on this. So yes. I think this should transcend politics and I'm so glad to see you uh, uh, doing this. Um, the ASIO boss last night also said that ASIO was investigating twice as many terrorism leads as a year ago. The threat is, was plateaued, but twice as many terrorism leads. In part, it seems from something that uh, Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton was saying, because of extremists coming back from overseas, which is uh, a bit concerning. While, but while he said that the main threat still was Islamist terrorism, he did warn about the rise of right-wing racist groups as well and the terrorism threat from that. Kimberly, how serious do you think that is? Well, I think if ASIO is pointing it out, it's serious. They are an exceptional intelligence agency. Uh, so I think there's probably a thin, uh, thin veneer, thin ice between hate speech and, you know, acts of terrorism. I think we've seen that in Christchurch where 51 people mm -hmm. were killed at a place of worship. In Norway a few years ago, 69 young Labor Party members were on an island. They were shot to death uh, by a, a right-wing terrorist. I mean, we must take this... We, we are just lucky that this... All plots have been foiled, other than, you know, Lint Cafe, um, but plots have been foiled by our intelligence agencies. If they are saying yeah. that this is a threat, then we must take that threat seriously. Then it's seriously. a threat. <clears throat> and, of course, there was a case it in Germany where I think, uh, what, nine people That's were... Right were killed by a crazy uh, guy. Um, can I just go, go back to the China thing? James, the Sunday Age uh, on the weekend reported that Caulfield Grammar School has scrapped its plan to name its new aquatic centre after a former student, uh, the Olympic gold medalist Mac Horton. So, uh, and it did this, it made this decision to protect its commercial interests in China. Now, Horton, of course, famously accused Chinese swimming superstar Sun Yang of being a drug cheat, refused to share a podium with him at the Olympics, and his name's mud in China. Now, I don't know the truth of this story, because the school then eventually, eventually put out a statement saying, oh, the story's wrong, no decision's actually been made. Well, maybe no, or maybe they simply got cold feet. So, hypothetically, I must now put the question, should Caulfield give in to China... Or should it, uh, we'll put it this way, should it now insist on naming its swimming centre after Mac Horton? Andrew, I think the only option available to Caulfield Grammar now is to name their aquatic centre after Mac Horton uh, because of the speculation, whether it's been true or untrue. Uh, Mac Horton deserves this honour because he's an outstanding Australian sportsman and a graduate of Caulfield Grammar, but not just because of that, because he's also shown incredible character and integrity and courage in making a very strong and, I believe, very correct stand against cheating in sport and drugs in sport. And that's exactly the kind of values that I would hope a school like 
Corfield Grammar is seeking to inculcate in their young people, not just sporting achievement, but character and judgment. Uh, and, and I think Mac Horton has demonstrated that. So I really hope that Corfield Grammar, regardless of the truth of these reports, uh, embraces this opportunity to honour him appropriately. Can, I'm can actually I out of time, uh, Kimberly. This... Can I just quickly oh, get your take? Okay. Well, I think this goes to the values-based interaction and engagement we have to have with China. We cannot allow that, uh, you know, those kind of considerations to take, uh, to override, uh, you know, the considerations of our values. And we've seen this is the latest in a number of incidents. Qantas, for example, about Taiwan, uh, referring to ta the way they refer to Taiwan. University lecturers having Taiwan as a free state on maps and having to issue apologies. This, is a, this seems to me to be the latest in, in a long line of these of, of increasing I think, uh, examples. I think that's right, Kimberly. No, well, well said. James Patterson, Kimberly Kitching, thank you both so much for your time. Thank, thank you, you. Andy. Now, last, night I last, last night, by the way, I showed you uh, a tweet from MP Dave Sharma from the Liberal left commenting about the financial strife that uh, GetUp, the uh, left-wing organisation, is up to his neck in and him saying, this is the last time I donate to GetUp for a while. I thought, wait, he's been donating to the enemy, the Liberals' enemy? Well, Sharma since explained he was being ironic. He's never donated. What a relief. Maybe I've underestimated this man. I'll see if I can get him on for a whiskey with a mate. Hang on, because uh, Peter Credlin and, and Alan Jones are up next, followed by... Paul Murray. For me, good night. My name is Manny Karoudis and I'm the former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts.